This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Also, make sure to check out and subscribe to our YouTube original channel, UCTV Prime, available only on YouTube at youtube.com slash UCTV Prime. This UCTV podcast is sponsored in part by Audible.com, your destination for the widest selection of digital audiobooks available, including many by guests you've heard here on UCTV. Audible.com is offering UCTV podcast listeners a free 30-day trial subscription and one free audiobook download. Just visit audibletrial.com slash UCTV to sign up. That's audibletrial.com slash UCTV. And thanks. Hello, everybody. Thank you for coming to the event tonight. Um, I hope you all have been wait. I hope you all have been waiting for a good night because that's what it's going to be today. There are a few announcements that we would like to make. First, um, there are emer- there in case of an emergency, there are exits up to your the top, and there are the exits where you the door you came from, and the one over there, and there are also exits in the backstage right there and over there. Um, also, would you please turn off your cell phones during this during this um, presentation because we would like to have some respect for the people who are presenting, and there will be no intermission during this these this announcements. Thank you. Well, now I know who I am. Greetings uh, to everybody tonight. I'm very happy to see you here and extremely pleased to have science in the house. Um, A lot of folks who come here see the name East Bay Center for the Performing Arts. What uh, they might not see underneath is that our mission is to engage the imagination of young people so that they can envision and create a better life for themselves and their community. At heart, um, human beings are said to be one of the um, limited numbers of species that have the imagination to look ahead into the future. And uh, the idea that human beings have the capacity uh, to spend a lot of time uh, experiencing life and then noticing patterns and then paying very, very, very intensive uh, you know, attention to some of the parts of those patterns and the inquiry and the imagination that goes into that inquiry is, uh, is something that we, at least some of us, like to think is a place where scientists and artists who make their living are at, at home. Um, you know, the, we know that uh, higher skills in mathematics and, the, and today modern science, the use of, of big amounts of data, tremendous amounts of data are, are very important. And yet the fundamental idea of sitting down and taking a leap of imagination about what you know and about what you can do and what will happen is something I think that is at the heart of what we would like our students here at uh, the Performing Arts Center uh, uh, to really know and to embody. Uh, There is a a gentleman who I happen to like. He's a little controversial. Uh, Antonio uh, Damasio is his name, and he describes um, the human brain as something that monitors the inside of us and monitors the external world and the internal world. 
I like to think that human beings are really um, artists, are very concerned with the translation of making sense about what we understand and we're monitoring. We're monitoring not just our pulse and our breathing and how many photons or phonons come into our perception, but we're monitoring our emotions and we're seeing how the, our emotions and how we feel about the world um, react to what we observe about the external world. So these um, ideas and feelings, I'd like those of you who come from the lab and uh, the campus to understand that those, these understandings have informed our Young Artist Diploma Program, and that is why all of our students here uh, study classical music and African dance and music and Mexican music and dance. They study theater and they, they study voice, uh, tonal languages. They learn about patterns of the mind. Um, we don't use exactly those languages, but we, we ask them to learn about their capacities of, as a human being. And so for that reason, I'm uh, using this first opportunity for you to be here, for us to welcome you not only with our heart, but with our mind, and we hope that the two are joined in genuinely saying welcome to Richmond. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Science at the Theater's Science Remix, brought to you by the Friends of Berkeley Lab. My name is Jeff Miller, and I'm head of public affairs at the lab, and I will be your host for this evening. Before we begin, I'd like to introduce our Berkeley Lab director, Paul Alavisados, who's seated right here. Berkeley, you want to wave? Want to, Paul, you want to wave the crowd? Thank you. Thank you, pe people of Richmond, for coming out on such a warm night. We appreciate the warm welcome, and, and thank you to the uh, folks joining us on our live stream broadcast from around the country. Now, we're very excited about tonight's program. To be honest with you, I'm sure you probably didn't know what you were getting into. I mean, what does science remix really mean? Maybe you were attracted by the fact that we're going to have ice cream at the end of the show, and that's why you came, and that's fine, too. That's good. But uh, actually, to explain what science remix is, is pretty simple. We're going to show you our science and our scientists in ways that you have never seen before. Now, you might have an image of scientists. There will be no standoffishness unapproachable, strange, dour people in white coats walking around here. That's not who we are. We're going to show you who we are as real people, approachable people, with a sense of purpose and a sense of humor, believe it or not. Uh, our scientists are going to be talking to you about their feelings, their failures, and their successes, and all the great, crazy ideas that they have that brings them to work every single day. And because they are so approachable, you have cards on your seat, one of which is a question card. So please write down the questions that you have for scientists as they occur to you. We're going to collect them twice during the evening, once about midway through the show and again uh, near the end before we have all of the scientists assembled here on stage. And we will then select the questions or, you know, we will just, you know, we'll, read, we'll do them all. It depends on how much time we have. But we know that some of you are probably going to have questions right away. As soon as the scientist finishes a segment, you're going to want to have a question answered. You can't wait. And that's okay. We'll accommodate you. We'll do it. We want you to ask questions, and so we'll do it right then if that's the case. Also at your seat is an audience survey card. Please fill those out. Uh, we use those to help plan future programs. There is another envelope with a survey in it, which we will explain to you as the evening goes on. Now, I'm assuming that most of you know about Berkeley Lab. You know that we're a Department of Energy National Laboratory, that we have 4,200 scientists and staff, that our scientists have won 13 Nobel Prizes, and you know that we probably like to think of ourselves as a place 
that brings science solutions to the world, which is all good. But there is a little problem. And the problem is, if I were to ask you, what is Berkeley Lab, you might stumble. And to be frank, we sometimes stumble with that too, because we're so many things to so many different people. So tonight, in the couple of minutes that I have, I'm going to help you try to solve that problem. And because I'm a words guy, I like billboards. And billboards, because they force you to speak quickly. You don't have a lot of space, even though they're big. It's kind of a contradiction. So I'm going to show you uh, sort of a fictitious billboard campaign that's going to help you answer that question, what is Berkeley Lab? So we'll start. This is a fairly simple thing. I mean, we know, you know who we are. We're, we're in the Berkeley Hills above the Cal campus. We have a great view of the city. And again, here's this bringing science solutions to the world. This is how we like to think of ourselves. And this is probably what you think about after all the, all the time we've spent in Richmond speaking to you guys. But what you need to know is that, and what you probably don't think of, is that whenever there is a huge national need, some big problem, some great innovation that's really necessary, Berkeley Lab is on it. That's how we think of ourselves. Fighting climate change, helping the developing world, creating new energy-efficient technologies, we're on it. So from clean water to clean energy, we're on it. That's what we do. Dark energy, understanding the universe. I mean, how huge is that? We're on it. Fuels from sunlight, we're on it. I just read something today about an artificial forest. We're on it. When you need more scientists in the classroom, we do it. We're on it. When, when we want to create more jobs or, or create new companies, we're on it. When you, there are wondrous new materials that need to be created, we're on it. That's what we do. We're also happy about what we do. Look at this picture. And the reason we're happy is because if you ask a person at Berkeley Lab, why are you there? They say, well, you know, I really am here because I want to change the world. Oh, yeah, change the world, we're on it. Okay, we just add it, add it to the long list. And that's what they really think. And that, you see that, I think, in that picture. So the next time someone asks you, what is Berkeley Lab? A very simple answer is a Department of Energy National Laboratory that solves big problems and makes new technology possible. That's a pretty simple answer, and that will suffice. But since I'm here to tell you what we are, I need to spend a second telling you what we're not. And with all due respect to our friends farther east... We're confused sometimes, and we are not Livermore, okay? So Berkeley Lab is Berkeley Lab, and uh, that's something, if you leave this, uh, leave this theater tonight with no other fact in your head, it's that Berkeley Lab is Berkeley Lab, okay? So you got that? Okay, Berkeley Lab is Berkeley Lab. Okay, enough of me uh, to begin the program tonight, and before I introduce Sarah Richardson, our first scientist, uh, I wanted to spend a second to introduce Bree Smith, who is, where is Bree? Hi, here's Bree. She has some extemporaneous remarks and thoughts about science. Last minute touches on it. You see that? You see that? All for you guys. All for you. I was told to write something about my questions of science. You know, I've had a biology. You know, I've had physics. Paid a lot of attention, you know. But when it comes to writing spoken word in it, kind of, I was kind of conflicted. Kind of didn't know really what to say. So this is what I came up with. I hope you guys like it. As I jump into my confusion, engulfed in this dark hole 
stretching my thoughts of the what if, what is and whys. Why? Science answers this question, but does it really? Looking into the skies, I see what I know to be clouds. These cotton ball masses that float and seem to create shapes of things I know. Am I even conscious? Or am I trapped in this matrix of what I should know and believe? Pause. My animalistic reflexes are in full effect. Monkey see, monkey do. As I evolved for what I believe to be way too many chromosomes, I was naturally selected. To me, I am the definition of what I believe science is. What am I but human? Science, by Webster's, Webster's definition, is the intellectual and practical activity encompassing the systematic study of the structure and behavior of the physical and natural world through observation and experiment. Maybe one day I'll be able to break that down. Questions answered, what is your definition of science? Or is it even something that can be defined? I'm stuck between the walls. These walls that I've, that I've nicknamed question and rebuttal. I've never met answer before, so by the end of the night, I hope I meet her. Thank you. So our first science presenter tonight is Sarah Richardson. Sarah, please, please give her a warm welcome. Can you hear me? Okay. Well, all right. When I was a little girl, I was a nerdy little girl. I really, really loved Star Trek. I watched this show incessantly. And if you're not familiar with Star Trek, all you need to know is that it's a science fiction show set in the future where humanity has joined this kind of space-faring United Nations made up of non-human aliens, and they're called the Federation. So the Federation is this big group of humans and non-humans, and they put their brightest, bravest members on these big spaceships that travel around space exploring, and the show follows one of these ships called the Enterprise. So the themes of the show were cooperation and exploration, and I bought it hook, line, and sinker. Little nerdy me was so impressed. And I think I'm a scientist because of Star Trek, because my favorite characters on the show were the scientists and the engineers. They were the heroes. I mean, think about it. The, they're seeing things that no one has ever seen before. They're solving problems that they keep running into because their captain has flown them into some kind of fix. And who has to patch the hole in the Enterprise? Or build a brand new engine from scratch out of only the things you can find on an alien planet? Or discover a cure for some space plague that Captain picked up smooching an alien? It was the scientists, it was the doctors and the engineers on the Enterprise who kept everybody together and kept them safe. And uh, guys, I really wanted to be one of those scientists on the Enterprise. But the coolest thing that everybody on Star Trek got to do was talk to aliens. They talked to aliens like it was no big deal all the time, just brand new life forms that they could communicate with. And that really blew my mind because think about it. At some point, those two groups, the alien and the non-alien, they could not communicate with each other. They had to come together and find a common protocol for exchanging information, for exchanging meaningful information. And sometimes on the show, you'd get to see the process. 
usually after the captain had flown them into some kind of fix. They'd be faced with an alien race that they couldn't communicate with. They didn't know what they wanted. And over the course of the show, you'd see them establish this protocol. And because it was TV and everything has a happy ending, you know, this alien race decides to join the Federation. Everyone sets aside their biases and learns something new. The humans learn a new technology or a new philosophy, and the aliens learn how good chocolate is, something that we have to offer the universe. But everyone ended up better off in the end. They, they joined the Federation, they came together, cooperation and exploration. So I decided I wanted to be a scientist because of Star Trek, and I just really wanted to meet alien races, but I know I'm not going to get to meet anything extraterrestrial. But luckily for me, I became a biologist because there are some very, very, very strange life forms on this planet things that are very hard for us to understand. The only thing we all have in common, all the life forms on this planet that we all have in common is we speak this global language, DNA. That's the only thing we have in common. So I had to become a biologist and learn to understand this DNA. So, but biologists have been exploring and meeting new alien species for thousands of years. I mean, once upon a time, we met this thing called a wolf. We call it a wolf now. And we kind of figured out what it wanted and what it liked, and it kind of figured out that we could be cool, we could be chill, and that we could live together. And over thousands of years, we learned to live with each other, and we kind of encouraged them to get friendlier with us. And in that process, we were speaking a language to them. We were changing their DNA. When we found two wolves that were pretty good to us, we encouraged them to get together, date a little, and have baby wolves that were also friendly to us. And eventually we ended up with a dog. And this was a thousand-year process that we, we changed their DNA by encouraging them to live with us. And we've done that for cattle, and we've done it for goats and sheep. And some would argue that we've done it for cats, although I would argue that maybe we changed and the cats stayed the same because they're still independent. But we brought these animals together, and I like to think of them as our federation. We have a special word for these animals that we've influenced and that have joined our ranks, and we call them domestic animals, and it means something special. They're animals that we work with, that we live with. And biologists have been bringing new animals into our fold for years now, new strains of sheep and cattle that are better at doing what we need them to do. So I wanted to do this, but I felt a different calling. I wanted to do it with bacteria. Bacteria are one of the most alien forms of life on the planet. They're truly strange. The only thing we have in common with them is DNA. And interestingly enough, we're covered in them. We're covered in bacteria. Nine out of every 10 cells in your body are actually bacterial cells. That's like three to five pounds of bacteria that you carry around with you. You are a super organism. You are a federation of species all by yourself. And after I knew that, I had to be a microbiologist. I've got to understand how this federation of bacteria and human walks around and gets everything done. We need those bacteria. We're keeping each other alive. It's amazing. It's the best federation on the planet. But it's a lot easier to talk to a dog than it is to talk to a bacteria. A dog can hear us, and a dog can read body language. But like I said, the only language bacteria understand is DNA. We've actually managed to domesticate some bacteria. You guys like cheese? Yeah, yeah. You like yogurt? Pickles? All made with bacteria. It's been thousands of years that we've been making better and better bacteria just the same way we made better and better dogs, just figuring out, oh, that yogurt tasted a little better, and that starter culture of bacteria was better for making yogurt than the last one. But 
it took thousands of years to do that. Oh, beer, yes. I, I left beer out not because it's it's uh, it's because it's not a bacteria; it's actually a fungus. But yes, yeah. <laughs> but you're absolutely right. Beer and bread, delicious. Bread mostly, guys, in the front especially. So we can't wait, though. We have problems that we think bio, that bacteria can help us solve. We can't wait thousands of years to just kind of evolve their way to helping us. So we needed a way to encourage the bacteria to do the things we need them to do, but faster. We need to kind of be able to speak their language of DNA. So I came here to the Lawrence Berkeley National Lab and particularly the Joint Genome Institute because they have established this infrastructure and this expertise in being able to read DNA. We're really good at understanding the language as we read it. So the Joint Genome Institute participated in the Human Genome Project, they brought all these scientists together and all this equipment and got really, really good at reading DNA, so good that we read every single bit of DNA in the human body. And now we go out into the environment and find bacteria everywhere, and we find plants everywhere, and we read their DNA. So we can read what's going on. But I became a synthetic biologist because I wanted to talk to aliens, talk to bacteria, so I learned to write DNA. So now we can read the bacteria's story, and hopefully in some ways we can kind of talk to them and encourage them to do other things. And when you read the, the bacteria's story in DNA, you, they have some interesting stories to tell. And I'd like to tell you one story, sort of a Star Trek influenced, inspired method of telling this story, but it turns out the bacteria have been waging a war with viruses for a very long time. These tiny little viruses called bacteriophage, for millions of years, bacteria and their bacteriophage have been fighting each other in the language of DNA. The bacteriophage uses DNA to say to the bacteria, do this, and the bacteria says, if I do that, I will die, so I need to come up with something in my DNA that will fight your DNA. And they've been waging this little war. Luckily for me, this turns out to be very useful when I'm trying to figure out how to talk to a bacteria. I figure out how the phage talks to the bacteria. But the bacteria adopted, they evolved this system, and they have an adaptive immune system, just like a human does. And this is blowing even scientists' minds. They were not aware that bacteria could remember virus infections. But the bacteria has a memory, just like we do, for the viruses that we've seen and we've survived. And unlike us, this is actually an improvement on our system, they can pass down those memories. So even their descendants will remember the viruses that they've, that they've defeated. So I can kind of exploit this to try and figure out how to talk to bacteria. I use synthetic biology to write fake memories. These are fake memories of DNA that the the bacteria have seen. And I give the fake memory to the bacteria and it causes it to attack itself. I give it an autoimmune disease. This is how I talk to the bacteria. And it will die. But then I can write some more DNA and give it to it and say, if you take this DNA and put it in place of the DNA that you're attacking, you won't attack yourself anymore and you'll survive. So I give the bacteria an autoimmune disease, which causes it to try and kill itself. And then I give it an alternative. And the alternative is say, hey, make a little more of this biofuel instead of less of it. And it says, I'd rather do that than die. And then it makes a little more biofuel. So I learned from reading DNA what DNA to write to get the bacteria to do what I want. And instead of 1,000 years to a bacterial strain that makes a lot of biofuel, I can do it in months. And I think that the little nerdy girl who really wanted to talk to aliens would be pretty impressed with that. So... I hope she'd be proud of me. 
But the best part is that since I work for the National Lab, I'm 100% taxpayer funded. So it's like being in the Federation already. Like I'm doing this for the good of science and I'm doing it for you and we're doing it together because your taxes are helping me do it. And I hope you're proud of me too. So thank you. So I, I know I won't um, think of Star Trek or microbes or bacteria in quite the same way again after that. Um, so we, I remind you, as Jeff told you, if you do have questions for Sarah, you could fill out the little handout that was placed in your seat, and we'll be collecting those a couple times throughout the night. I do know we have uh, about a minute for any urgent questions right now. If you have a burning question that you don't want to write down or just have to fire off right now, uh, please uh, ask it, and we'll, uh, we'll have Sarah answer that now. Anybody have a question? It's hard for me to see the audience. Um, I do have one. There was a question. Go ahead. Uh, you said that uh, all bacteria have the you know, trying directive of uh, survival. You know, they all seem to have a consciousness. And that's what they're mostly about. I wouldn't call it a consciousness, but all cells are driven, yes, to survive. The cells that make up you and me and the individual cells of a bacteria, it's about replicating yourself for every form of life. That's what it's about. Okay, thank you. We have to get to our next speaker now, and he's going to um, introduce us to, uh, well, good hand for Sarah there. So our next speaker is going to introduce us to an entirely different kind of biology, and that's the biology of exercise. Please uh, join me in welcoming Paul Williams. Thank you. And I do have slides. So not everything that Berkeley Lab does is deeply theoretical or is about improving the future in 10 or 20 years. Some of it is about improving your life, your future, right now. Berkeley Lab is actually home to the largest study anywhere in the world for studying the relationship of exercise to health benefits. It's called the National Runners and Walkers Health Study. It includes over 150,000 individuals, men and women, who regularly exercise, mostly running and walking, but also playing basketball, aerobics, working out in a gym, and other sports. It's a unique study. 150,000 individuals. That's more than one and a half times the entire population of the city of Richmond. It's large, and because of that large size, we were able to find discoveries that nobody else has been able to find. When we recruited these people, we asked them about their exercise levels, their diets, and their other health behaviors. And then they went on to live their normal lives. And all the time, their experiences were going to tell us about what was the type of exercise and the amount of exercise we needed to do to protect our organs, to protect us from disease, and to improve our health. They have shown us that by investing in exercise early in life, we can indeed have an important health improvement later on. The people in that study were very similar to my friend here, Jeff. Jeff is a runner. Now let me talk about Jeff's organs, how exercise improves his organs. To begin with, the hippocampus, which is the part of the brain that controls our memory, it gets a little bit larger. In addition, because Jeff exercises, 
he reduces the risk of his becoming senile due to Alzheimer's disease by about 40%. There's also 40% lower risk of his forming a clot in the brain and having a stroke. And he's a 41% lower risk of having brain cancer. And that's good, because if he had brain cancer, there wouldn't be a lot that we could do to help Jeff. This is Jeff's eye. Well, it's not really Jeff's eye, but we're going to talk about Jeff's eye. I've never looked into Jeff's eye, but I know something about it. I know that Jeff's eyes are healthy. For example, the risk of his having the lenses of the eyes clouded as a cataract go down by 31%. And in the back of the eyeball, we, we have the retina. And in the retina, we can have blind spots form, and that's called macular degeneration. And the risk for that goes down 36%. Let's talk about Jeff's blood. Well, if I was a vampire, I'd say Jeff was a good catch. And that's because he has very probably very healthy blood. For example, his risk of having high blood pressure goes down by about 35%. And his risk of having high cholesterol is down about 40%. And he lowers his risk of having diabetes. This is where you lose control of your blood sugar. He lowers that by about 70%. And even his blood cells gain an advantage. His risk of developing blood cancer or leukemia are decreased by about 36%. And if that's not enough, his risk of dying from sepsis or blood poisoning goes down by about half. Well, Jeff has a big heart. And he also has a very healthy heart. And in fact, because he runs, he's lowered his risk of heart disease, including heart attacks, by 39%. Well, Jeff likes to breathe the fresh air when he goes out and runs. And he's going to be able to do that longer. Because it turns out, by exercising, he has lowered his risk of dying from pneumonia by 54%. Well, we wanted to take out Jeff's gallbladder, his intestines, and his kidneys to show them to you. But we might want to use Jeff again for another demonstration. And he wasn't too keen on the idea. So we're going to let him keep those things. It turns out, by exercising, Jeff is able to lower his risk of gallbladder disease by 53%. And I've heard people say that Jeff has a lot of gall, but that's not true because he runs. As you get older, you can form little pockets in your intestines, and these get infected. It's called diverticular disease. And that goes down by 60% in association with exercise. In kidney cancer, Jeff has these remarkable, cell, these remarkable organs in his body, and they clean out all the blood's garbage. And fortunately, by exercising, Jeff substantially lowers his risk of kidney cancer and chronic kidney disease, which is good because if Jeff's kidneys fail him, it means we're going to have to put him on a machine for almost every day for the rest of his life. Now, Jeff's friends give him a hard time. They say he's going to wear out his joints. But that's actually not true. They're thinking about like a car. You get in your car, you drive it, the car and its bearings start to wear down. But the body's different. It's not like a car. The body puts resources where it needs it, where you can use it. And indeed, the body puts bone and cartilage into, into Jeff's joints as he exercises. So, continuing with the analogy of the car, Jeff's paint job may have faded a bit, 
but his bearings and his engines are in excellent shape. Now, Jeff is probably not thinking much about his big toe, but if he had gout, that's all he would be thinking about. Gout is a formation of little crystals in the joint, and it's very painful. And we would still make Jeff run on the treadmill, but he wouldn't like it. It turns out, by Jeff being a runner, he lowers his risk of gout by about 60%. Now, Jeff is kind of a lean and mean machine over here. He hasn't got a lot of fat on him. And some of that is probably because he exercises. Exercise does an excellent job in preventing weight gain and also keeping weight loss on, off once, you, once you've, you've lost it. But it's not a really good way for losing weight. And the reason for that is the body's very efficient about converting food energy into exercise energy. This is the amount of energy you must consume to run one mile. Now, I don't know about you, but I've sat down and I've consumed an entire package of Oreo cookies. But I've never just gone out and run 20 miles without recognizing it. So exercise does a great job of keeping weight off. And some of it might have to do by turning off genes that he may have inherited for gaining weight and also in appetite control. And breast cancer. I tried to get Jeff to wear a wig here, but we decided not to do that. If Jeff were a woman, he would be reducing his risk of breast cancer by 41%. And not only that, but after being diagnosed with breast cancer, if he were to run, he would substantially improve his odds for surviving. Well, these are some of the things we do at Berkeley Labs. In fact, these are all discoveries made at Berkeley Lab from the National Runners and Walkers Health Studies. These are all findings that are directly relevant to everybody here. From the estimates that we have generated, we have determined that if everybody were to go out and exercise at the levels that we have found to be optimal, we would save approximately $300 billion a year in medical costs. That's a lot of money to put into making jobs and into ed education. So eventually, scientists at Berkeley Lab may discover why, for each of these conditions, exercise is so beneficial and create an exercise pill. But for now, you can get the same benefits by going out and exercise. Thank you. Okay, thanks, Paul, and solid effort. Jeff, we'll have to figure out how far you ran afterwards. That was good. Um, again, if you have questions, uh, you can fill out the uh, handout. And if we have one question right here, we have time for one, so go ahead. Okay, so those are actually questions that got a lot. And walking and running, for example. Well, it turns out it takes about twice as long to walk to expend the same amount of energy as running. The same benefits are there if you expend the same amount of energy. It's just going to take more time to get you there. And you're going to have to walk further, too. So what is the optimal amount of exercise? There's some studies that just say if you aren't sitting all day, you're doing something to improve your life expectancy and health. I would say there's probably continued improvements all the way up to the equivalence of running 30 miles per week. Now, if you don't want to run 30 miles a week, that's fine, because any place you are along that continuum, you're better off than being sedentary. Thank you. Our next speaker um, is going to introduce us to an amazing new material. Uh, please join me in welcoming Alex Zettel.
Okay, good evening. It's a pleasure for me to be here and to uh, try to help us answer this question, can humans go to, to Mars? You see up here it says I'm a physicist, and when I go to a party, uh, people come up to me and say, what do you do? I say I'm a physicist at the Berkeley lab, and they say, oh, you know, I've got a sore arm. Can you help me uh, diagnose that? I say, no, not a physician. I'm a physicist. So they say, well, what's the difference? I say, well, a, a physician is responsible for unlocking the secrets of the human body, and a physicist is responsible for everything else in the universe. <laughs> okay, when I was a kid, this event took place. This was uh, people landing on the moon. It was an incredible event. A huge amount of science went into that. And at the time, I had trouble putting a garden hose onto the faucet, not having it leak water. And so I appreciated how complex a problem this was, this spacesuit. If it just has a little tiny leak, all the air goes out, and these people would be goners. So that kind of technology has been around a long time, almost half a century. And so we could say, well, if you can get to the moon, Mars is just a little bit further along. Why don't we use that same technology, and can we get there? So I'd like to review that. And uh, at the end of this short presentation, I think you'll know the answer. Can, can we send humans to, to Mars or not? So let's look at this question again. Can humans go to Mars? Well, yeah, sure. Uh, it, we've landed spacecraft on Mars, and you put a 100 kilograms of extra cargo on there, and you get a human to Mars. So the answer is yes. You know, end of story. We can certainly do that. Technology exists. Now, can live humans go to Mars? That's a different question, all right? That's a little trickier. Okay, so we have to think about that. You know, we, we can pack some human in there. Make sure once it gets to Mars, that spacecraft, the human is still alive and breathing and talking and so on. So maybe, starting to get a little harder, but maybe we could do that. And now the next question, can live humans go to Mars and come back and still be alive? That's even harder. It really technologically gets harder and harder and harder very quickly. So let's... You know, now we're going home. We're not so sure. Let's look at the, the major issues. First of all, the transport vehicle. That turns out to be one of the biggest issues. You have to have enough fuel in there. You have to have the right strength. If you make it too strong, thing needs too much fuel. It can't get it off the ground here, and so on. You also have to have enough fuel left to come back. It's a long journey. It takes almost a year to get to Mars, and a similar time to come back. Radiation. There's all kinds of harsh radiation in, in space, and we have had studies of humans in space for quite a number of days, but that's a huge issue going to Mars and, and coming back. And related to that are the physiological, psychological issues. Okay, can the human body even take that under those circumstances? And can the human mind take that? You could probably get a volunteer to go and, you know, say sort of wing it, but you want to make sure that they're still mentally coherent, and it's a, it's a tough thing. So there are a lot of issues related to that. I won't touch upon all of those. I'd like to just talk about this transport vehicle. That's sort of one of the, the, the big major uh, concerns, if we can even do this, if the technology exists even for that, notwithstanding all the other concerns. So if you're going to make a space vehicle, you have a bunch of elements at your disposal which can construct this vehicle. And we, we have elements that are aluminum, titanium, all kinds of interesting metals. And in fact, any composite you can think of would be made out of these elements. All the elements are at our disposal, and we just have to figure out how to put them together. So let's actually look at what NASA has come up with. NASA has been thinking about this problem for a while, and this is a sort of a technical chart, 
And on the left, it says specific modulus. That's how stiff something is. And on the bottom, that axis says specific strength. So those are engineering terms. You want something to be stiff and strong. And up at the top right where it says good, that's where you want the, the, the materials to be for this spacecraft construction. At the bottom left, it says bad. Those are not very useful materials for this purpose. And the different colors here are different kinds of materials that NASA has examined. And the blue ones are ones that are already flying. They already have been tested. They're, they're in rockets. They're in airplanes and so on. And then the near-term ones are green. These are the ones being explored right now. And then the ones in red at the top, it says carbon fiber and something called a single-wall nanotube. Those are the ones that potentially could be useful for this purpose. And so that's great. We've got a couple of materials up there in the good quadrant, and everything is at room temperature. Okay. Now, looking at that quadrant, a lot of these things are based on carbon. And in fact, through the, through the history of materials development, carbon plays a really critical role. On the left, it says natural fibers. These are the things you just pull off of trees and, 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 uh, or uh, sheep generate wool or silkworms make these nice little fibers. You're familiar with these fibers. They're, they're fantastic materials, natural. You can make ropes, other kinds of threads. But to go further, you need to combine elements together in ways that nature never really figured out. You have these synthetic materials, and you recognize things here like nylon, polyethylene, Kevlar, these are sort of the high-tech materials that we use every day and that are in use in, in uh, spacecraft as well. And on the right is sort of the most modern stuff, things based on carbon fiber and nanotubes, graphite-based materials, still carbon-based, but sort of the, the next-generation materials. And new uh, aerospace industries, these new Dreamliner airplanes are more and more using these kinds of carbon fiber-based materials. So maybe that's the stuff. We just make a spacecraft out of carbon fiber, send it off to, to Mars. Now, once you go to higher temperature, which you need to go to if you have this spacecraft, then everything falls off of that chart except for these few, these two materials right here, and they're kind of down in the bad quadrant, or they're not, they're not good enough. So now we're back to ground zero. It doesn't work anymore. This, this carbon fiber stuff just isn't going to work. So we're in bad shape. So what are we going to do? Well, we need some inspiration. We need some ideas of coming up with a new material. So the inspiration comes from the aliens themselves. Okay? Martians, in case you didn't know this, actually visited the Earth in 1996. It was memorialized in this Hollywood movie called Mars Attacks. And uh, it was kind of a low-budget movie, but it got the job done. And so these, first of all, you notice these characters are really smart. Look at those brains. I mean, their brains are so big, they're just bulging out of their skulls, right? These Martians have figured out the right materials with which to get to Earth, and so we ought to be able to use those same materials to go to Mars, just figure out what these Martians are using. They've got, you know, the, the spacecraft, you see these girders and things. What's that made out of? What's this helmet made out of that protects them? What are the clothing? Clothing looks luminescent. It's, it's really interesting stuff. It's protecting them from the radiation. Well, it turns out these Martians, who had this all figured out, had the same elements available to them. Same on Mars, you have all the same elements you have on Earth. Maybe different percentages, but these elements are universal. They're everywhere in the universe. You find exactly this periodic table. So they start with the same thing, and these Martians have identified not carbon, because that's, that's not going to work. They've identified two other elements that are key to making this journey possible. And those are them, right there. This B 
and this N. N is nitrogen. It's mostly in the air. Air is 80% nitrogen. And B is boron. You go to Southern California, there's a whole town called boron. Just dig it out of the ground. That's an element. Nitrogen is another element. How could we combine those two plentiful, simple, non-toxic elements into something that's going to get us to Mars? How would you do that? Well, it turns out Marvin Cohen, who is a, a, also a physicist, a theoretical physicist, he used the best computer programs in the world to figure out how to combine these two elements into something unusual. This fiber, that's a boron nitride structure. It's a nanostructure. It's of nanoscale dimensions. And this fiber makes, whoops, makes use of this special bond in chemistry. There's a red arrow there to a bond between boron and nitrogen. That's the strongest bond we know of in nature. Strongest bond between any two elements. And that bond holds this thing together even at very high temperatures. So it's the strongest, lightest, most thermally conducting, most chemically resistant fiber that's ever been discovered. Okay. Well, that's in the computer. What good is that? You need to make the stuff, right? And it turns out it's not easy to make. You have to have equipment that makes temperatures hotter than the surface temperature of the sun. And you want to make it in enough quantity you can use it. And that's been done. That's been done at the Lawrence Berkeley National Lab. And here's an example. There's a gloved hand holding this stuff. It kind of looks like cotton. Looks like we're going back to just pulling stuff off of trees. But those fibers are these high-tech fibers. You can spin them like wool. You can bind them together. You can put them into composites. On the right is, in fact, this weave. It looks kind of like carbon fiber, but that's a boron nitride weave of a material that you can use to make structural components. So we've got this material. It was synthesized in my lab, also at the Lawrence Berkeley National Lab, and it's a special material. Now, we put that on that same chart, and it's suddenly at the top right quadrant, even at this high temperature. So that's what the Martians also discovered, I'm sure. They also had computers. They discovered boron nitride already in 1996, before we did. But that's the material that we're going to use. So let's look at this a little bit. We've got these uh, sort of a comparison to a bunch of properties that might be useful to engineers and, and scientists and people building rocket ships and so on. And it says competition. On the left, there are a bunch of materials, steel, aluminum, titanium, carbon nanotubes, Kevlar, and so on. And if you have a circle that's completely black, that's great. If you've got some white there, that means it's some question. It's not quite as good. And you see that this fiber I just talked about covers all these bases from lightweight, energy absorbing, high temperature resistance, high strength. And it absorbs radiation, too, the radiation that can damage people out in outer space. That you, Because you're there for many days on this trip, you have to protect yourself with a lightweight material. So this is ultra lightweight and absorbs that radiation. So now let's get back to this chart, which was sort of the carbon progression throughout the years. For thousands of years, humans have been advancing this. And now we're to the next step for boron nitride. And that's the material. That's sort of the material of the future for many applications, not just for space travel. And so I have a chart here that shows just sort of a glimpse of what might be for the future. We talked about this radiation shielding. They've been uh, used, these boron nitride materials, in prosthetics, in various kinds of cancer therapy. They have all kinds of wonderful properties. It's a new material that hasn't really been explored that much, but every time we look at it, it's doing wonderful things. Lightweight, chemical resistance, high strength. It transmits heat really well, so next generation computers could have this to, to draw the heat out. 
So if somebody gives you a quiz and says, can humans get to Mars safely and back? You say, yes, but what are they going to need? What's the answer? Boron nitride, right. Okay, thank you very much. Thanks. Do you have any burning questions? Like, why does anyone want to go to Mars? Yes, sir. So let's well, repeat the question first. So uh, it's about uh, an expedition to Mars where people would go and not return, correct? Okay. Yeah, and I think the further question was, would boron nitride help them live there safely on Mars? Well, first of all, there are a number of people I'd like to send to Mars on a one-way mission. Uh, Why are you pointing to and, me? And I, no. I wasn't, no. I'm not going to oh. name names. Anyway, um, the answer is yes, because you'd want to transport structural material there to build a dome or whatever you need to build, and it would have to have many of the similar engineering requirements, lightweight, radiation protection, that you would have for this spacecraft. Uh, there have been people who volunteered already and said, if you're going to have a mission like that, I'd love to go. But you'd want to ensure that they are protected even when they get there. So the answer is yes. Any other burning question? Ooh, yes. Yeah, so question how is, expensive is boron nitride to make? The, the, the question is, uh, the bonds are strong, and so in a, you know, by inference, they would be, it'd be energy expensive to make them, and how expensive is it to make this stuff? Uh, the answer is, it's, it's not free. Uh, nature would have done that a long time ago if it were free. Uh, but it's not prohibitively expensive. It's at the same range of carbon fiber when you add up the energy cost and the materials cost. So it's well within what people are using already for structural applications. Okay, so I have a question for the kids in the audience. How many of you are interested in going to Mars? Raise your hands. Anybody? Nobody? Oh, oh I see a oh, volunteer. Okay. okay. Oh, good. We're going to round you up right All after right. this. All right, one last question before we bring on our, our next presenter. Any, any other? You had a question here, young lady, right? That's right. That's a great question. The question is, if you send people to Mars, there's no food there, so how are they going to do that? Because they have to eat. Well, from the previous talk, they're just going to take a whole bunch of Oreo cookies along and, uh, <laughs> to keep them, keep them going and you know, no, no messing with the treadmill. That'll use up too much energy. So you'd have to take the food with you for that trip, and that's not prohibitive. The, the weight penalty for taking food for, say, a two-year journey is not that bad. Uh, mariners used to do that. They'd go on ships for a whole year or something and have a lot of food along. The problem is if you want to stay there, how do you get the food? So you'd have to have a way of growing food the way we grow food here on Earth with uh, seeds and plants and soil and water. And that gets complicated, but that would be one of the things you want to do, have a sustainable ecosystem on a different planet modeled after what we know about the biology and the plants that we know about here on Earth. And we do that to help us have a continuous source of food. Thank you, Alex. Okay, thank you. So our next presenter is Brett Singer. And he's going to tell you about that mysterious envelope that you have at your seats. Great. Hi. Wow, those are bright lights. So uh, indoor air quality scientists, how many people here spend any time indoors? 
great. Term indoor air quality, Any, anybody heard that term before? A few of you, great, okay. Uh, for those of you who haven't heard it, you can probably figure out what it means. It's the quality, of the, oh, thank you. The quality of the air indoors. So right now, we're indoors, we're breathing. Turns out that we actually spend a lot of time indoors. I'm gonna tell you a little bit about that. And I also get the pleasure of introducing Berkeley Lab's first citizen science project, which has to do with indoor air quality. So that's what I'm gonna do over the next few minutes. Hopefully, you'll find that interesting and then you'll participate. So indoor environments, as I said, we spend a lot of our time indoors. This includes spending time, of course, in our homes, but we also go to school, we work in offices, we go shopping in the supermarket, maybe we eat at a restaurant occasionally. These are all indoor environments. Even places like airports and buses, those are indoor environments. So we spend a lot of time indoors, about 90% of our time on average, some people more, which means that we're breathing most of the air that we breathe while we're indoors which also means that most of the air pollutants that we breathe happen while we're inside. So if we can understand how those pollutants get inside, and if we can manage those pollutants, and we can provide healthier air for people and improve health. And that's kind of the goal of my group and my own research. So one of the cool things about being indoors is it can help protect you from the outdoor air. So when there's really bad outdoor air, staying inside is protective, and that has to do with the nature of how pollutants get removed or get stored when, they're moving, when the air moves inside. Okay, and uh, even forest fires is a form of outdoor air pollution. You may have heard when there are big forest fires, the authorities tell people to stay in their homes. One of the other cool things about being inside buildings is that we can run the air through filters to help remove some of the pollutants to make the air even better. Of course, there's a flip side. And the flip side is that there are pollutant sources indoors, and we need to pay attention to those. So, of course, everyone knows smoking is really bad. Cigarettes are a terrible pollutant source. We should not have smoking indoors. Thankfully, we have lots of places now that are smoke-free. So we've, we've, we've done a, gone a long way there. But it turns out that even something like a candle produces some of the same pollutants that are in a cigarette. And some other products we think of as being pretty innocuous, like cleaning products, personal care products, even art markers, can, not always, but some of these products contain chemicals that if they build up to high levels can be irritants or otherwise unhealthy for us. So a lot of what we do in indoor air quality is we try to understand which of these products have dangerous chemicals in them, how much we can use them, and then what are the, some of the controls that we can use to make sure that they don't build up to high levels. And one of the big ones is ventilation. I'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. So. Uh, this is one that's surprising to a lot of people. Cooking. Cooking is a pollutant source. What can be wrong with cooking? Cooking is great. I cook. I love to cook. Before I even get into this, let me tell you, please, 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 cook. Enjoy cooking. Eat good food. But you have, oop, little speaker here. Uh, you, ha you do have to pay attention when you're cooking to make sure that you provide good ventilation. And I'll talk about that too. So why do we need to provide ventilation when we're cooking? Well, it turns out that Gas burners, gas is in general a pretty clean fuel source. And when everything's going well, mostly if you're burning gas, you're producing carbon dioxide and water vapor. That's actually what we produce too. We burn fuel and we produce carbon dioxide and water vapor. So the sources of carbon dioxide and water vapor in your home are mostly you. But if you cook, you're going to produce these things as well. Not a problem. But that nice gas flame there can also produce carbon monoxide, which is not so good for you. 
it's almost definitely producing some nitrogen dioxide, nitrous acid, formaldehyde, and these very, very, very tiny particles called ultrafine particles, which have the pretty interesting property that they can move through your body and get into places that bigger particles can't. So these are foreign particles that get into your body and move around, get through the blood-brain barrier, and potentially do some harm. And there's more and more evidence that they do harm. So, so there are pollutant sources there. Well, the electric burners, including that toaster down there, are generally better, but they also produce ultrafine particles, so they're not home-free in terms of uh, their safety. And then the cooking can also produce uh, additional chemicals, including, uh, I have up there, acetaldehyde as an irritant. Acrolein was actually used as a nerve agent. So when you're frying oils, acrolein is one of the byproducts of that. Again, generally in very low levels, but if you have a very tight house and you're not ventilating, and you're doing a lot of cooking, those pollutants can build up to levels that are not good for you. So how not good for you is it? Well, we recently did a study because we had this question. So, okay, you produce these chemicals. Does it really ever matter? And it turns out it does. So what we did is we used a computer model that simulated the pollutant emissions from gas burners. We measured in the laboratory emission rates from gas burners. And then we got data on how much people cook, and we had to make some estimates of things. And through doing this study, we actually found that as many as 12 million Californians, this is just Californians, it's about 66 million nationally, people may be exposing themselves to levels of pollutants inside their homes that the EPA says are not acceptable for outdoor air. Now, when, when those levels are exceeded outdoors, the state has to send a plan to EPA. Like in California, because of the problems we have in Los Angeles and Fresno and places like that, California has to tell EPA how it's going to clean up the air, the outdoor air. But since this is happening in your home, California is not required to come up with a plan because it's inside your home. So that means you have to have the plan. So basically, the idea here is if you're cooking, and the key word here up top is without venting or without ventilation. That's when you have problems. So we've done a lot of research to understand how we can provide or how we can help people provide good ventilation in their homes so we don't have these problems. So... On the bright side, if you do ventilate, you can get these pollutants out of your home so you're not breathing them in. You don't have a problem. And there's lots of ways you can ventilate. The, the one that we generally recommend is the best is that range hood above the cooktop over there on the left. Okay, those are generally work the best, and there's a lot of variation there. Down on the right, you see a, a, a something called a downdraft uh, ventilation system, so it sucks down and then blows air out of the house. And then uh, there's still all these, the old-fashioned window. If you have a window in your kitchen, you open that window, that's going to help. It's not going to be as effective as that range hood, but it will still help. So specifically, one of the things we've looked at is we've tried to figure out how effective are these different forms of kitchen ventilation. And we've come up with this idea of capture efficiency. It's pretty straightforward. The idea is what fraction of the pollutants and everything else that gets produced down at the cooktop gets removed by the ventilation source. So right here, you're seeing a microwave above the cooktop. It's operating on low. So of the, all the pollutants that are being produced down at the bottom there, probably something like 40% are getting sucked out of the house uh, through that microwave. That's okay. That really helps a lot. But if you were cooking on the back burner there, then it might be 80%. And if you had that range hood on, uh, that microwave on high, it might be 90%. So the two things... Just this is the news you can use. If you, if you are cooking in your house, use whatever kind of ventilation you have. If you, you want to have, a, if you have a range, you want to make sure it's an exhaust 
ventilation, which means that it sucks air out of the house as opposed to blowing air back at you. And one way you can tell, if I can get the pointer, I'm not going to try the pointer. Oh, maybe that's the pointer. There you go. If it's a microwave, if it's blowing air back out from here, then it's not sucking it out of your kitchen. Okay, it gets sucked up. And if it's not blowing air out of here, and sometimes you can see there's actually a vent up here, then it's being sucked out. Here, same thing. Uh, it would be blowing. Some of these blow out through here. And sometimes you can open your cabinet there and see a duct up there, and then that's how you know that it's venting. Okay, so we have a nice range of lab here. Very importantly, nothing we do, uh, we do alone. So I have a lot of research papers and findings and stuff like that. I can't do that myself. I don't do that myself. Here you see some pictures of my virtual team, the people who couldn't be here. I'd also like to uh, introduce one of my colleagues who is here as part of the team, uh, Chris Stratton over here, has done a lot of really great work helping with the range hood stuff, and uh, it, afterwards he'll be around that to help you with the survey that I'm going to tell you about in a minute. So what are we doing here? Our goal is to try to make healthy homes. The way we want to do that is we want to make sure that everybody has good, effective kitchen ventilation. Three key factors. The first thing is we have to make sure that people understand. People being everybody out there, the building inspectors, the building industry, understand that it's very important to have good kitchen ventilation. Second thing is we need building codes to require it. And we need product standards so we know that the products work. But in order to do this, we have a lot of questions that we need to answer. Because when we go to the building and code people and say, hey, you need to do kitchen ventilation, by the way, quick note, in California, it's required. Most of the US, it's not. So when we go to Tennessee and say, you've got to, you've got to have kitchen ventilation, they say, what are you talking about? We don't need it. Everything's fine. So we need to answer these questions. How many homes have it? How effective? What kind? And as talented as my team is, and they're very talented, we can't answer these questions alone. We need your help to do it. So this is what the Citizen Science Project is about. Specifically, we created a survey to ask a lot of these questions that I mentioned. And that survey is two ways you can answer it. If you like to spend a lot of time online, you can go to our website, indooraire.lbl.gov, and you'll see this uh, uh, page here. And then if you click on this big green button here, it'll take you to the next page. It'll tell you a little bit about the Range Hood survey. And, and then if you click on this button here, it will actually take you to the survey page. Now, since you were so nice to come here tonight, we made it even easier for you, uh, for some of you, people who don't want to spend time online, uh, maybe don't have easy access. On your seats, there's an envelope. And inside that envelope, there is a paper version of the survey. So you can take that home. There's little check boxes. And then the envelope itself has our address on it, and it's already stamped. So you can just go home, check off the boxes, put it in the mail. Now, I just want to tell you this is, a, this is a officially a human subject study. If you participate in the study, you will be a human subject in our research study. Uh, and as such, you should know, it's entirely voluntary. We ask you to help. We would love to have your involvement in this. If you don't want to do it, please feel free not to, of course. Um, very importantly, we want to make sure this is anonymous. So if you do take the survey, make sure you don't write your name on the paper or on the envelope. Just throw it in the envelope, send it to us, and we'll get it. If you have any questions, there's a website there, there's an email address, and there's also a phone number. So feel free to call. Feel free to ask me any question. Do I have a minute or two to answer questions? Yes, I'm done. I'm done. That's it. That's it.
Okay, Brett, stand here in the light. Come, come here to the light. Okay, so do we have any burning questions? Yes, gentlemen, right here. Oh, great. So your kitchen fan has a, like a grease screen on it or has a carpet? There's two things. Most kitchen fans will have a grease screen, and that's actually what they were... So some of those that recirculate air, they blow it back into the kitchen. It's mostly to capture grease, which is a good thing, but it's not going to remove the pollutants. So those grease screens will capture some of the grease, and then they'll capture some dust, and then they'll get clogged, and then they won't work so well. So you actually... As part of your range hood maintenance, you want to pull those screens down occasionally. And the best thing is if you have a dishwasher, throw them in the dishwasher, and then that will help clean them. Does, does that answer the question? Yeah, one, and another question right here. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting point. So we're, we're, we're so blessed and fortunate to live in a place that doesn't get too hot or too cold. So, so sealing up your home is not as important here as if you lived in, let's say, Chowchilla or Wisconsin, okay? Chowchilla is in the Central Valley, in case anybody's wondering. Um, I knew uh, that. He knew I knew that. that. Yes. Um, so, uh, so, so in short, though, we do have cold enough winters that we run our furnaces a lot in the winter, okay? So if you air seal your house and tighten it up, then you'll have less of a heating bill in the winter. It turns out that those drafty houses, the time when you have the most air moving in and out of the house is the time when you least want it to be. So when it's coldest outside is the time when there will be the most leaks in your house. So that's why the air sealing saves energy. But then if you seal it up really tightly, then you need to provide some kind of ventilation. So it just depends on how tightly you seal it. Even in your house, though, your nice drafty house, um, when you're cooking a lot, the pollutants build up very, very, very quickly. So even in that house, you really want to have some kitchen ventilation. If you have an exhaust fan, use that. Otherwise, open a window. Okay. Does, uh, do any of you have questions written down on the cards? Please raise your hands if you do. Okay. We have some folks here who can go collect them for you. Can you guys go pick them up? Thank you. You can pass them to the end of the aisle. We'll get to those at the end of the show. Okay, Brett, thank you very much. So our last Berkeley Lab presenter of the evening is Ashley Gibb. Please welcome Ashley. All right. I think science is awesome. I've always loved it, and I think... The most important part about being a scientist is curiosity. We're all born curious. How many of you used to ask tons of questions? Anybody? How many of you still ask tons of questions? That's good. Does anybody have a younger sibling who just asks why all the time? That's a good thing. That's a really good thing. And I think this curiosity is really important. Whether we're asking why grass is green, why when you open a soda or a carbonated beverage it goes fizz, or whether you're asking anything about the world around you, it's really exciting. And sometimes we ask easy questions that we can learn just by, do it, just by looking at something. 
And you might think, asking, why is this butterfly blue? That sounds like an easy question, but it turns out that a lot of simple things around us, like the color of an animal, are really complicated. And I think what happens is a lot of people, they ask a lot of questions when they're a kid, and then when they get older, they learn that some questions are really hard, right? Yeah, we have lots of really hard questions. And a lot of people give up. A lot of people get discouraged because they don't understand the answer. And my advice to you is not to give up, to keep asking questions all the time. So if we look at this butterfly, for example, one of the things that I really love doing, and this isn't my research, I really like looking at things closer. So the fact that it's blue, it's not actually a pigment. If we look closer, we can look one level and we can see this texture with a, re a normal microscope. And then if we look at one of those little pieces, we get even more information. It's made up of all these little petals. In everyday life, we normally can't look at a butterfly that closely. So it's really exciting to see these things. And then when we look really, really close, we see that it has this really beautiful structure. And everything around us, if you look really closely, has a wonderful complexity. But it's complicated. And we get to this, and maybe we ask, why is it like that? It turns out it makes the light bend in special ways that, turn, that makes it blue. But if you ask how it does that, I don't know. That's a hard question. That's continuing research. And that's not something that you can answer just by looking it up for five minutes. And I think what we don't tell you about science is that most of it, most of the time, things don't work the first time you do them. Have you guys ever failed? Yeah, everyone fails. We always tell you when science works. We had this wonderful discovery, we understand the world. But a lot of the time it doesn't. A lot of the time it takes 100 tries before we actually get that one experiment that works. And when we do get that one experiment that works, we have to make sure that we can repeat it. And sometimes you get really good results, and you have to figure out how to repeat them. So a lot of scientists spend a lot of time failing. But what differentiates a scientist from someone who doesn't want to do science is that we keep trying. And I think this is true in anything that you do. Encounter failure, but embrace it. Because if you keep going, if you keep trying, then eventually you'll figure it out. And if we look at things that are, if we keep asking questions especially, then we learn so much. We can look at large things, maybe our body, and we can see the skin on our body. We can see the blood, but if we look closer, there's so much intricacy. So if we look even closer, things get smaller and smaller, and there's so much there. What I do in my research is uh, I look at things really, really closely. So I get to use a really cool microscope. Instead of light, like a regular microscope, we use these things called electrons. And that means we can see things that are really, really, really small. So has anyone ever looked at a strand of hair? You can look at it now, if you're here. Strand of hair, it's pretty small, right? Kind of hard to see. Imagine if you cut it into 10 pieces, the width. If you cut, made it 10 times 
less wide, 10 times narrower. And then cut that into 10 more times. And then cut that 1,000 times. That's the sort of scale that we're working on. And what's really cool is when we look at things, maybe if we look at them with our eyes, we see it like this. Then we can use a really cool a regular microscope, and we see it kind of in between these. And then we get a better view. And then we look at it in these really awesome microscopes, and we can see it even closer. We can see little wrinkles and folds that you would never see with your eye. And then if we go to Lawrence Berkeley National Lab, this place called the National Center for Electron Microscopy, we get to look so close that we see atoms. These spots here are actually atoms. And this on the left, that's boron nitride. Do you guys remember it? It's this really awesome material. So, but we have to keep asking questions. We have to wonder, what does it look like? What is it like? And sometimes that's uncomfortable. I remember when I first got to Berkeley, I was surrounded by all these really smart people. And it can be really intimidating. Sometimes you get questions and you don't know how to do them. And you think, oh, maybe I just can't do this. Maybe I'm not good enough. And all these people around you, it must be really easy for them. But it's not. Everyone's struggling. Everyone fails. Some people show it, and some people never show it when they fail. But I promise you, they do. So keep asking questions. Never give up on it. And sometimes, sometimes you'll fail. In fact, if you become a scientist, you will fail a lot. But that's part of it. You fail, and you problem solve, and you keep going. And that's a really exciting thing to do. And one of the things that Thomas Edison said when he was trying to invent the light bulb is that he hadn't failed. It's just that he had found 10,000 ways that hadn't worked. So there's a lot of things that we can do. And I think it's really just about keep going, keep trying, and look closer. Always wonder, what, is it, what does it look like if we look just a little tiny bit closer? What if it were a little smaller? And keep asking questions. <laughs> So any burning questions for Ashley? Oh, there must be some. No? Okay, well, we'll save it for... Oh, yes, there is one way up there. Sorry? Oh, she asked, what is an atom? That's a really great question. So, if you have stuff, everything around you, it's stuff, right? Now, if you break that stuff up, into a really small piece. In fact, if you break it into the smallest possible piece that we can break it up to, where it's still that same stuff, that's what an atom is. It's one little teeny, 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 tiny piece of stuff. And every single thing you see, everything in the universe is made of atoms. You are made of lots and lots and lots of atoms. Thank you for the question. Okay, um, we're going to uh, have the scientists assemble in one second, but before we uh, uh, begin...
begin that part of the show, I believe we have an East Bay Center student. Yes. Oh, there you Who is going to uh, comment and reflect upon our little journey this evening. And this is Naomi Campos. Please give her a warm welcome. A spoken word piece. Okay. Science. A systematic enterprise that builds and organizes knowledge in the form of testable explanations and predictions about the universe. One man cannot create this world so recently, but an explosion out of nothing, Big Bang Theory. Afraid of the unknown until it's discovered by a human, science builds society. Society that has been brainwashed by unrecorded history. Evolution. Humans have developed by what was once bacteria. Dinosaurs that once have walked this earth now sit in a museum for our entertainment. Electricity. A form of energy that occurs in nature. The invention of the telescope. That made a difference. The discovery of Jupiter, eventually the eight other planets. And the giant star that lights up our lives. Without you, nothing is possible. Plants wouldn't grow. There would be no life wouldn't happen, no show. And so I ask myself one question. Is this real? Thank you. Some uh, chairs on stage, and we will have our scientists sit here, and we can take some questions live, and we have some questions from you guys. Okay, well, let's start with Mr. Williams, the exercise guy. So, Paul. Is there any correlation? Huh? Do you need to get back on the treadmill for this question? No, I don't need to get back on the treadmill for this. But it is sort of relevant. Is there any correlation between age and exercise? Let's say aging, I, I think maybe is what they mean. Aging and exercise? Um, certainly, we've seen that people, as they get older, and we have runners in our studies that are in our 80s, that they're running a lot less fast than they did when they were in their 20s. But it is amazing that we have people who are running marathons in their, in their 80s as well. I think when people start to get old and they start to be susceptible to diseases, it's, it's, it's when they are older. And that's when exercise may have some of its greatest benefits. Not only are we trying to prevent disease from progressing when we're young, but we also want to put some, um, uh, some back up and sort of uh, prevent the progression of diseases when they're older as well. So is, have any of your uh, people in your cohort, uh, are you gathering information on weightlifting, on weight-bearing exercises? There's, there's other people who have looked at that much more extensively. And certainly that's been recently integrated into the exercise recommendations. Because as people get older, they lose uh, muscle mass. And that muscle mass is different than fat mass in that it burns a lot of energy. Uh, whereas your fat mass burns less energy. So even something like resistance training has uh, a weight loss component to it and also has a fitness component to it as well. Okay, thanks. Uh, the next question is for Alex. Uh, how do you generate the temperatures necessary to synthesize boronitrite? So the temperatures are, are extremely hot. I mentioned hotter than the surface temperature of the sun. So you use electricity. You run electrical currents through gases and you create something that's kind of like the sun. You create a plasma. You could also... Uh, create the plasma with l powerful lasers. You need some powerful source of energy that you concentrate 
in a certain location. So we use these plasmas that we generate with uh, high-powered electricity. Okay, thanks. And I promise the kids in the audience, this is not going to go on too long because I know you probably want that ice cream. Uh, Sarah, uh, what kinds of training and education are required to be called a scientist? Well, I work with scientists who have bachelor's degrees and scientists who have master's degrees and scientists who have doctorates. But generally, you want to go get a bachelor's degree at the very least. Okay, so it's the person who asked that question. I hope that gives you a good answer. Uh, for Paul, again, does running harm the knees? I think in some people, they certainly have knee injuries from exercising. One of the questions that we're always asked, we're always looking for the benefits of exercising and, all, and not the downside. And we actually looked at osteoarthritis and hip replacements in runners because we thought certainly that would be the area we start to see some problems. Turns out that the people who are having problems were not the people who are running because they do sort of a linear exercise. It were probably people who are doing gym workouts with a lot of bending and, um, and, and stretching. And in fact, if you look at the occupational research, you find that the people who are carpenters and people who lay, lay carpets are the ones who really have uh, the knee injuries. Okay. For Alex again, who do you think will begin the human colonization on Mars, the federal government or private space industries? Well, I hope the, the people in this room will be drivers for that. Uh, certainly, there's a, it's going to be a combination. Our, our government is, has an investment in, in these kinds of uh, activities and the space program that started in the late 40s, 1950s, and 1960s that culminated in the moon landing was driven by the government, but it involved a lot of private corporations and national laboratories, and so it was a collective effort of the entire country, and I think we're going to need that again. Okay. Well, I have a question for Ashley because we talked about this before. Have any of you gone into uh, the grocery store and seen that sign says chemical-free? You notice that sign? Ashley, what do you think they should think about that when they see it? So that's actually a uh, pet peeve of mine. Uh, nothing is chemical-free. Absolutely nothing. And I mean that in two ways. First, that if you have absolutely nothing around, if you have a complete vacuum like space, it's chemical-free but also that everything is chemicals. We are made of chemicals. Uh, water is a chemical. Air is made of different molecules, nitrogen, it's a chemical. So everything that you see in the store is also made of chemicals. Be careful, some chemicals are good for us and some chemicals are bad for us. But they all have chemicals in it. Okay. Uh, Fred, how many people do you hope to have in your survey? Uh, great question. Well, I'm looking at probably 100 people here at least, so uh, that's a good starting point. <laughs> this is, the, we're, we're hoping that we can get all 100 of you he, that are here tonight to uh, participate. And please feel free to tell your friends. Uh, if you grab an extra paper copy, you can hand that to somebody else, indirect.lbl.gov, and the survey can accommodate as many people. We're actually looking to get thousands and maybe even tens of thousands of people nationally. So let your friends and family know in other places. Okay, great. Uh, my mic, that seemed to be off, but we'll continue. So, uh, set this down. I guess I'll just hold two. This landfill issues, this is for Alex regarding boron nitride. And we're going to have one more question after that, and then we're going to adjourn for some socializing in the mezzanine area. So, Alex, 
Landfill issues for boron nitride. Are there, are there issues? Is it going to degrade? What are we going to do with the stuff that we're creating now? The question is, is it going to degrade? And what are we Yeah, will it degrade? What's, what's the ecological cost of this? Well, so far, we've done some tests, and it seems to be non-toxic. It's made out of non-toxic materials, and it has a high activation barrier, so it stays together which is good. It doesn't seem to detrimentally affect biological systems. Cells love to grow on the stuff rather than being uh, adversely affected. And uh, so, so far, so good. We have to pay attention to this and, and keep it on our radar screen. Uh, but like anything, you, you, you shouldn't overindulge and you should uh, use it wisely. But so far, it seems to be very safe material. Okay, great. Last question for the This is again for Mr. Williams. For the benefits you described, Paul, does it have to be walking or running? Running. This person actually swims and wants to know if swimming will help, or does it have to be weight-bearing? I think what we found so far that most forms of exercise give a similar benefit so long as it's measured in terms of energy expenditure. So the easiest exp uh, comparisons we have is walking and running. So they're using the same muscles, and it's just done at different intensities. And those, for most outcomes, we find that these things have the same benefits. There's been some interesting exceptions. Running seems to be better uh, in achieving survival after being diagnosed with breast cancer. And running seems to be better with respect to um, weight loss and keeping weight loss. But other health benefits of exercise, they seem to be similar. So the general recommendation is you should choose that exercise that you're going to continue with uh, because that's the exercise that's going to count. Okay. Well, that concludes tonight's presentations. Thank you, Berkeley Lab scientists. Thank you, audience from Richmond. You've been great. And please, uh, our scientists will stay. They'll be happy to answer other questions you might have. And we'll adjourn now to the mezzanine for some socializing. Thanks again. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.